This is your Friday Daily Delivery. I am Michael Rand. Plenty of stuff to get to today. Vikings made a lot of uh, interesting decisions. Maybe that's a euphemism I will use for right now in the first round of the NFL draft on Thursday, trading down 20 spots to the very last pick of the first round before selecting Lewis Seen, safety from Georgia. We got a lot of thoughts on that. You'll hear from general manager Kwesi Adolfo Mensa as well along those lines, but and also a lot of comments from readers, listeners uh, on Twitter asked for their opinion of the move. Not a lot of overwhelmingly positive sentiments about how the night went, even if people generally agree that Lewis Seen could be a very good player for this team. Um, Twins have won seven games in a row now after that four and eight start. Another very breezy almost win over the Tigers seven to one on Thursday. So they are eleven and eight now after that four and eight start really brought themselves out of that early hole and look awfully good right now. And the Wild, a big overtime win against Calgary Thursday night, getting them on the precipice of home ice in that first round playoff series against um St. Louis. All they need now is a point in tonight's game against Colorado or to have St. Louis lose in regulation against Vegas. So those teams are tied. Actually, the Wild too clear of St. Louis now with that one final game remaining tonight. So we'll see how that goes. And Chris Hine, Timberwolves beat writer, will join me to set up big game six Wolves against Memphis on uh, on Friday night at Target Center. So my goodness, there is plenty of stuff going on in local sports if those are the traditional big four men's pro sports all of them are hopping right now but first what did I miss got to get to the draft right at the jump like I said Vikings moving back 20 spots and you know I read Ben Gessling's story from uh you know from from the from the night suggesting that you know, the trade value charts that you look at, you know, the Vikings traded number 12 and number 46, and they got 32, 34, and 66. So the end of the first round, very early part of the second round, very early part of the third round. The the draft charts, you know, kind of divided on whether that was fair value for what they gave up or not. It feels like a lot to give up. It felt like 12 was, you know, if not a super premium pick, was a pretty pretty elevated pick where you've got your chance at a lot of different difference makers. The guy I really like, Jamison Williams, ends up going in that spot after that trade to the Lions. And we're going to, you know, we will relitigate this trade for years to come. The guys that they were, you know, that they could have had at number 12, how did their careers pan out versus how did Lewis Seen uh, work out? How did these other picks they got end up working out? So, my overall take on a move like this is when you do something like this, you had better be right, right? Because easy thing, and Quase Dofo Mensa said this, that the easy thing would have been to just stay at 12, and there's a thought, he said, to just do that, right? Stay at 12, take you know, take Williams, take Kyle Hamilton, the safety um, that everybody loved, take you know, one of those edge rushers that could impact the passing, you know, the pass rush in, in a meaningful way next season. But instead... 
you know, you, you get to this point where you're stockpiling, you know, top top 100 picks, which is generally where draft analysts see that the talent in a draft being, you know, kind of a, there's a cap at that point in a lot of years. And, you know, in fairness, going into this season, there was a thought that maybe this draft wasn't super top heavy, but that there was a lot of depth in it. So that part of it makes sense. It just like looks at it like the eye test of the trade. When you look at it, you're like, it just feels like they could have gotten more uh, for for that number 12 pick. And, you know, we're going to have to see as time goes on, but you know, it, the the gut instinct was what were they? What are they thinking? Right? What are they thinking? What? Why? Why do that? Why get so cute? Why? You know? Why do you? Why do you feel the need to make a deal like that when you've got a number twelve pick? When you've got a lot of great players sitting right there? But let's hear first before we get to some readers, uh, listeners, and such. Let's hear first from Quesito Fomenza as he talked through the process of you know talking to Lewis Seen and what he thought of Lewis Seen as a player that they ultimately decided to pick him after trading down. Just up here, incredibly excited about what we just did. Um, you know, we added somebody, we talk about our culture, the pillars of our culture, smart, tough, competitive. And I think we added somebody who's, you know, off the charts in all three, uh, incredibly dynamic player, uh, adds range all over the field in the past and in and, and both phases, really. Um, Knows the defense inside and out. Um, just an incredible player. We, you know, he was one of our targets really starting in the teens, and you're kind of sweating it out there uh, as it goes on. And you know, this was a great outcome for us. Um, you know, we looked at our situation at 12, and and we, we kind of looked at our different scenarios. If we pick certain a certain player versus you know sort of the trade back and what we could get with the trade back, and we liked our options. And this was one of our good options, so we're excited that uh, this came to fruition. Um, again, it, it was a cool moment. You know, you get to call somebody, and I guess he didn't know. He, he you know, he was he he, uh, he he introduced me. I said, "Hi, I'm Quasey," and he still didn't really get it. I'm the general manager of the Vikings. He still didn't really get it. And I said, "Hey, you know, we're a building full of dream chasers. You want to come chase dreams with us?" And he and he just like, "Why?" You know, he starts yelling. Uh, so that was a great moment. Something I'll never forget for the rest of my life. Now, if building full of dream chasers isn't somebody's fantasy football team in 2022, I'm going to be very disappointed because uh, that feels like a natural tie-in to that. And like I said, Vikings fans, by and large, did not love this move. I'm going to play a few. I'm going to not say play. I'm going to read a few of the best comments I got. I asked for how people felt about this trade got a lot of replies some of them kind of along the same lines i'm not going to read every single one but um you know it's here here's a sampling of what i got Uh, at looney viking says seems to me like a skittish new gm punting on his first draft night and getting a mediocre reward but it's not like i'm an expert he knows more than i do and that's fair we got to remember that i mean these guys we look at it, we read a few mock drafts, we maybe study, we look at a little bit of film, things like that. We, we formulate opinions, but these guys, this is their full-time job, more than a full-time job. They know they've got to get this right. They know they need to you know, believe in what they're doing, believe in their process, and they certainly do believe in, in their process. So you know, there is that element to it. Derek Karen says, I like the pick, but I still hate the trade, though. And I think that was echoed by a few different people um in terms of how they felt about this you can like lewis seen as a player you can think he fits well into the defense and still think why did you trade down and that was a sentiment echoed by a few different players 
at Fats Minnesota says, I feel like I'm I feel like going into this draft they were determined to trade down unless the perfect guy fell to them. And then the market to trade down didn't materialize like they thought it would, but they traded down anyway. Scene is almost beside the point. They sold too low on pick twelve. That's pretty fair. Kind of how I feel about this too, that they maybe should have gotten more uh, for for this uh, for this number 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 twelve pick. Scott says, "Skull, lol." Ouch. Um, yeah, there's a there's an element of that. You know, I I don't feel like the Vikings, you know, will will grade out great compared to the rest of the league. But you know what? Again, drafts are the kinds of things where we we'll never know for years, right? We won't know about this for a long time unless. Something you know weird happens, and we we under we all of a sudden gain some sort of you know some sort of uh, great clarity on this draft sooner than sooner than later. But these things usually take a lot of time to play out, and we won't really know the full scope of this for a long time. PJ Flex Ego says apparently Quasi likes to drink red wine on draft night. Ooh, it seems like a Rick uh, a Mike Zimmer callback there. Um, would have loved to have been in the building, by the way, if uh, Zimmer was still the head coach and they traded down 20 picks. Uh, Scott Wilcox says, if the Vikings draft Malik Willis at 34, all is forgiven. Willis, the quarterback from Liberty. I don't think that's going to happen, guys, by the way. They are committed to Kirk Cousins for the medium term at least, but I could be wrong. It says, otherwise, I feel that I'm Charlie Brown, promised a new kickoff, then feeling set up because Queasy's just Lucy yanking the new ball away. Now, a few people did really like the pick. Mitchell said, Mitchell Locks says, great pick, another Harrison Smith, but faster. Um, you know, other people saying they like the pick, but they still don't understand the trade. You know, other people saying they had their minds made up to make the trade. Um, you know, so it's it's just kind of a smattering of um, you know just a little bit of disappointment and a little bit of like what what exactly were they doing? Were they trying to be the smartest guys in the room and then you know kind of got stuck in this position, or or was this really the smart pick that they hope it was? I don't know. Like I said, time time on this will will really tell. We don't know. I mean, I, I like. I like Lewis Seen's measurables. I like what he could bring to this defense. They certainly seem to be valuing safety more than the previous regime. Maybe this is a you know a Harrison Smith replacement at a certain point, but right now putting those two guys on the backside of the defense will, you know, be a good thing. But you know, again, when you make a trade like this, when you give up a lot of draft equity in the first round to add draft draft depth. You need to be right. Your process needs to be right. Your belief in the draft needs to be right. Your algorithm, however Quase Adolfo Mensa wants to describe it, needs to be correct because the easy, smart thing to do in some cases is just to stay where you are and take a very good player at number 12. So a lot is riding on this. I know they have a lot of depth to make up because of some deficiencies in past drafts from predecessor Rick Spielman. Um, but whether they got enough value for that number 12 pick is going to be a question that I think we will need to evaluate over the years. And right now, I just don't feel like they did, even if I think Lewis Seen is a good player. Take a playcation to Mystic Lake for 24-7 gaming, fun restaurants and bars, and luxurious hotel rooms. And join Club M to bask in the rewards. Follow the lights to Mystic Lake, where every day is play day. Really happy to have Chris Hine join Daily Delivery. Of course, 
covering the Timberwolves for the Star Tribune has been busy. Hopefully you've been reading a lot of his coverage of the Wolves, this series with Memphis that has been very good, very memorable in in a lot of ways. I'd say um, to a certain degree, this has been one of, if not the best opening round series in, in the whole league, just with the back and forth nature of it. Um, Wolves fans might disagree at this point because Memphis is up three, two, but it has not lacked drama. Has it Chris Hine? It has not uh, drama on both sides, uh, both good and terrible basketball at times being played in this series. Um, I, I think everybody kind of looked at these matchups coming in and said this had the potential to be the most fun first round series. And I think it's it's more than lived up to that billing for sure. Now, you wrote before game five that one statistic or one factor in the game might determine that game. And you looked awfully smart when Memphis grabbed 18 offensive rebounds and, you know, seven of them alone by Brandon Clark in the fourth quarter of that game that really turned that double digit Wolves lead into a heartbreaking loss. And I wanted to ask you, though, I mean, they've, they've been talking about this all season. They've been talking about, you know, rebounding better. They've not been a good defensive rebounding team. I think they finished third from the bottom in the league this year in terms of defensive rebounding percentage. And Memphis is very good at it. Aside from put a body on a body and try harder, are there different tactical things they can do, different lineups they can deploy that wouldn't take away from what they want to do, you know, otherwise defensively or even offensively? Uh. It's an interesting question. Uh, first off, thank you for stroking my ego by saying I look really smart uh, in game five. Uh, if we could do that more on this podcast, that'd be great. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I don't know about different lineups. It, it, it's hard to say. The one thing that I will say is I think more of Memphis's rebounding success and the Timberwolves rebounding failure uh, than I think I, I had anticipated hinges on how they defend Morant. Um, so the fourth quarter, Brandon Clark goes nuts. Morant goes nuts because Morant was, was starting to really beat the defense a lot. Um, and so that shifts the defense around. It shifts bodies inside. And a guy like Brandon Clark can then kind of shift around himself and get in pretty prime rebounding position when the defense is so concentrated on John Morant. If they're able to keep him more out of the paint, then you have more of a kind of a traditional setup on defense. Nothing is as scrambled as it is. Um, and you're able to get get kind of box out guys in good position. You're not scrambling to make up for it. They do a lot of sandwich box outs with two smaller guys on a bigger guy. You know, kind of just, you know, I try to get two guys on, on one guy. Um, you know, but... I don't know about lineup combinations specifically for rebounding. I think you might get into you might get into trouble elsewhere with that. Um, so I think that's the big thing. It starts with it starts with their defense on Morant uh, more than anything else. It seems like doesn't sound like you're ready to scratch my Greg Monroe itch, does it? No, no, I'm not. I'm not sure he's quite the answer because I yeah, I just don't I just don't see it. Okay, that's fine. I, I didn't think he was I didn't think he was the answer. What you said about John Morant is interesting because you're right. That fourth quarter, I mean, was a lot of that was probably Patrick Beverly foul trouble, then eventually fouling out of that game because he's been one of the primary people on John Morant in this series and has done a pretty good job. 
on him. But, you know, when he was, you know, not not in the game for a lot of that time, John Morant, you're right, was getting to the basket more, and that does shift bodies around. That said, um, Anthony Edwards in that game played 35 minutes and did not grab a single defensive rebound, had one offensive rebound in the game, didn't have an assist or a steal or a block either. Um, you know, and, and I know we're asking a lot of someone who can't even legally buy a beer yet, but he is one of the most important players on the team. Do you get the sense that they they want more on, on that end from him, especially on the rebounding effort? Well, it's, it's funny you mention that because we just got done with media availability as, as we record this, uh, and Ann just got done saying, I will, I will read the quote. I asked him about rebounding today, and he said, uh, quote, I will go rebound the ball. You will see a lot of that tomorrow. I will have a lot of rebounds at the end of the game. I promise you that. Win, lose, or draw, I will have a lot of rebounds. So I think he's very cognizant of how his rebounding was uh, in game five. Um, so I think if there's any prop bets out there uh, where you might be able to get that a little low, you know, or, or maybe you don't believe in him. Maybe you don't believe he's going to get a lot of rebounds and maybe you want to go under, but it sounds like it might be a good time to go over uh, on Ant's rebounds tomorrow. I mean, he, he's too big and too athletic to not get rebounds. You know, part of it probably is how their system is designed and they want to get out and run. And he's certainly one of the guys they want out in a position to, to, you know, to get in the open floor quickly, but you know, when you're just getting killed on the offensive glass like they were, especially in that fourth quarter, it is kind of an all-hands-on-deck situation. And I was surprised when I looked at the statue at the end and just didn't see anything on the defensive rebounding side next to his name. Now, he was pretty hard on himself after that game five, was honest, saying, you know, I, I gambled, it was a dumb mistake, can't do anything about it in terms of that last play with Ja Morant. Um, you know, I don't sense that he's the kind of guy that's going to have his confidence shaken, but how do you, how do, where do you sense his head's at or everybody else's head's at after game five, now having had a chance to digest that for a day or two? Uh, as usual, they seem pretty confident in themselves, and I think that's both a blessing and a curse. <laughs> I, sure. think, I think it's, it's a blessing in the sense that it can allow them to move on quickly from what otherwise might be a, a lingering defeat. So, you know, Malik Beasley today saying that they feel the series should be 4-1 and they should be resting just like Golden State. Ant is always confident. He's, he's definitely not shaken or anything or anything like that. Uh, he never is. Um, but, you know, I think that confidence can sometimes turn into hubris, uh, especially late in games, as we saw in Game 3 and Game 5, where they sometimes feel like they can coast I think to a win or, you know, they get, they get away from what they, what they did to build some of these needs. So I still think they're very confident. I, I, I have no feel for how game six is going to go. Um, none at all. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't know what, what I, I'm very prepared to be booking a terrible travel itinerary, uh, for, for Saturday morning and potentially on Monday, but I, I just don't know where this is going to go from here. Yeah, I thought they're going to get their doors blown off in game four. And then they played probably their best overall game of the series, at least in terms of relative to Memphis playing pretty well in that game, I thought, too. And they were just the better team for 48 minutes that night. So I don't know what to expect in this game. It does have the feel of a series that could go seven games just because of how evenly matched they are because this game is a target center. But you're right. I don't know exactly how it's going to go. I do know. It won't go in their favor if they don't get better shots 
in the fourth quarter if this is a close game. This has been a thing in games three and five, not just the offensive rebounding, but the, you know, the offensive execution down the stretch, getting a lot of isolation ball, long jump shots late in the clock, just not really flowing the way they need to. I mean, what, what is that part by design? Is that part by the nature of their players? Because they do have a lot of guys who can do that or what is, what do they want to be their late game offensive identity? I guess. Good question. And <laughs> Feels like it's still a work in progress in game 88, as this is going to be coming up here. Um, so Chris Finch talked about it today, where it's like, look, guys are, are making moves, dribbling, you know, and, and with the end goal of being getting the best shot for themselves. Whereas for the other maybe 46, 44 minutes of a game, the end goal is, you know, you drive or you do things to get shots, not just for yourself, but for everybody else that's on the floor. And so that objective has changed when they get into this iso ball, hero ball method. Um, and, it, and it diverts from what they want their offense to look like normally. So yeah. that is the focus, I think, is not so much Ant or Dilo or Carl using these opportunities to get shots for themselves in the last five minutes of the game, but instead getting shots for everybody else that's on the floor. So I think that is, when you have that shift in mindset, maybe the rest of it can fall into place. Um, that seems to be the way you should think about that. But at the same time, you know, they're, these guys want it. They want the ball in their hands and crunch time. They want to be the ones taking the shots. And then, you know, uh, you know we were talking about in the press room today, um, you know, and then, you know, media might criticize them for not wanting to take the big shots in situations like that. Sure. So, you know, how do you walk that line of, of using your ability to get your teammates open shots? Um, but also you're the best players and traditionally you should be taking those big shots. I think they need to, to air more on the side of just get an open shots for whoever it is. Cause that's when your offense is working best. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think they, will, you know, make or miss when the shot is open, you can at least justify it a little bit more than kind of those contested late shot clock shots. Um, Chris Hine, final thought for you entering game six on Friday. You know, we've identified a couple things here in terms of offensive rebounding, in terms of late game execution, but this series has had so many twists and turns already. I mean, we started with Carl Anthony Towns, you know, being kind of a no-show in in game in game two, and then having some more struggles along the way, we we've seen you know him bounce back. We've seen Anthony Edwards struggle a little bit here lately with some things. We've had you know Memphis's players kind of up and down. Stephen Adams was the starter at the beginning of the series. Now he's barely touching the court. Um, as you think about the evolution of this series, and Jordan McLaughlin suddenly being a key member of this uh, this this rotation and playing crunch time minutes. Um, Anything that you can identify as, you know, X factors or things that you would look for in game six that will tell the story beyond the ones that we've already mentioned here? Um, I think both teams have, have players that they want to get going. Um, I think for the Wolves, Malik Beasley has been, after a strong start to the series, has been very quiet. So, you know, I think he could be an X factor in a, in a home environment uh, tomorrow night. And I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about Crow Anthony Towns' foul trouble, but if Jaron Jackson Jr. has a game where he stays out of foul trouble, what does that look like for Memphis? So 
we haven't really seen that in this series with him, except for maybe game two when they're just rolled to a win. So those would be kind of my two guys. Does Jaron Jackson play a smart game? Does Malik Beasley have a night like he had in the second half of the season? Um, so many dynamics at play, so many different things that can happen. Um, but like you said, I, I, I just I have no feel for what's going to happen on Friday night. None at all. That's what makes it fun, though. This has been an extremely fun, entertaining Absolutely. series. I mean, when you when you legitimately don't know what's going to happen, and these are two teams with not a lot of playoff experience. I think we've seen them play tight at times. Both of them, I think they've you know had some execution issues at different times, but it 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 is not lacked for tension and entertainment value, and that is really all you can ask for. That's that. That's absolutely right. And and whoever wins the series is probably going to get shellacked by Golden State anyway. So. You know, what difference does it really make in the end? I've got Warriors Bucks in my final. I don't know about you, but that was uh, that was my pre-playoffs pick. Although I'm regretting Boston a little bit at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I still think Boston can get through. No yeah. Middleton for Milwaukee. Yeah, I, they got a shot. Yeah, we'll see. Chris Hines, good stuff. Read Chris Hines' work. Star Tribune, StarTribune.com from Friday's game and beyond. And Chris, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Chris will, of course, be there tonight when the Wolves play the Grizzlies. Game 6 at Target Center. Will he be going back to Memphis another time? Another early morning flight, probably, to get there Saturday, get settled in, get ready for Game 7. We will find out about that um, tonight. I don't know. Like, Like both of us said, it's hard to predict what's going to happen in this game. I think the, the Wolves have been a resilient team all year, but do they have one more of those kind of bounce back efforts in them? Or is this where Memphis, you know, the higher seed, predictably the better team going in, puts them away? I don't know. I'm leaning towards this one going seven because it just feels like that's the way this series should go based on how back and forth it's been, but they need to find a way to close out games better than they have been, or their season is going to end tonight. The wild season is not ending tonight, but their regular season is ending tonight. Playoffs start Monday, inching ever so close to having home ice in that first round series against St. Louis. Big, big win over Calgary in overtime on Thursday night, and who else? Kirill Kaprizov with the overtime winner. A beauty at that. 3-2 over uh, Calgary in that game. Notable in this game, Cam Talbot um, got the nod in goal, made 31 saves on 33 shots, 3-2 win. I'm imagining it's got to be Marc-Andre Fleury tonight. You wouldn't play Cam Talbot in back-to-back games. That doesn't make any sense, but... Like I talked with Sarah McClellan about on Thursday's podcast, kind of how these goalies fare down the stretch, and maybe even in these two games could factor into who gets that game one nod against St. Louis early next week. So watch for that as you are watching the Wild and Colorado play tonight. Let's finish with the cooler. Yeah, the team that's got a seven-game winning streak is relegated to the end of the show. That's how much else is going on in this market right now twins seven in a row and all phases of their game just rolling right now it's it's been pretty impressive to watch um them then put together this streak sometimes it's pitching sometimes it's hitting yesterday it was both as they win seven to one uh, uh bailey ober had ran into some rough spots 
only pitched three and two-thirds innings, but ended up only giving up the one run. He he gave up a lot of base runners, gave up eight base runners in just three and two-thirds innings, but was bailed out by some good defense, some some good bullpen work by Cody Stashak, Tyler Duffy, and then Griffin Jacks giving them three shutout innings to finish it off, um, saving the rest of the bullpen, things like that. Um, you know, and getting some guys going who maybe weren't going before. Carlos Correa, three hits, three RBIs in this game, including a double. Good to see him start to go a little bit more. Uh, you know, Gio Urschel has kind of been their most consistent hitter for average all season. He had three hits in the game. Trevor Larnick had a couple hits. Um, you know, so it's just kind of this all-around effort right now from this team, you know, especially after that four and eight start that, that we talked about and so you know all of a sudden you know I, I again we've talked about this almost on every show but I just did not think they were very good and then they came into the season and started four and eight I was like this team is you know this team's headed for trouble this team's just headed for you know headed for uh, you know started to lose a little bit of faith and now all of a sudden you know they got a little bit well against uh, against the uh, the AL Central, and and now we'll see where they go from here. Now they got to go play three at Tampa Bay, four at Baltimore, then Oakland, Houston. They don't get to play their own division again until Cleveland on May 13th. So we'll see how they fare outside the division now instead of inside the division. But right now they are cooking, and I could not have been more wrong at the at the four and eight point of this season. That will do it for today. Thanks for joining me here on Daily Delivery. Toying with the idea of a weekend bonus episode just because there's so much going on. We got rounds two and three from the Vikings draft tonight. Got the Wolves in game six. We're going to find out if the Wild has home ice or not tonight. Twins playing again. You know, the seven-game winning streak on the line. I mean, this is just an embarrassment of riches right now in terms of sports in terms of things to keep track of um it's it's just a it's an unbelievable thing right now and it's been a lot of fun even we got minnesota united this weekend too although i think if i did a bonus episode it might be after tonight and we wouldn't get that result in there too so we will see we'll see maybe I'll, i'll drop another one if things go a certain way tonight but for sure be back monday with patrick Royce. have a great weekend we'll catch you again soon